Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Solid Ground Church, where every week we share messages recorded during our weekly gatherings in Lewis, Delaware. If you have questions or if we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to this week's message. So here's where we are. Uh, Today we're wrapping up a series called Christmas Names. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at each week uh, a different name or title that the, the angel Gabriel told the Virgin Mary uh, Jesus would be before he was born. So this morning we're going to look at the last one. So uh, here's our passage that we've been in every week. We're going to start in Luke 1, uh, starting verse 26, says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he'll be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And we're going to stop right there in that passage. And watch this, guys. You see something really fun I like to do? I like to mess with people who are doing cameras. So, Katie, see if you can follow me. <laughs> there we go. I just need my water. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, Katie. Not sorry. All right. So, look. So here's where we've been. Um, in week one in the series, we talked about the idea of uh, the Lord making Jesus great. And we talked about six ways that Jesus Christ uh, had an incredible impact on human history. Last week, um, what we did was we talked about uh, this idea of him being son of the most high, right? We talked about, okay, like, what does that phrase, like, son of God, mean? And this week, we're going to look at this phrase right here, the throne of his father, David. Throne of his father, David. Um, that is a really, really neat phrase. And to understand the significance of it, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a really big story. And so if you're somebody like, and, and maybe you're like, you're new to the Bible, like you're new to like, okay, I open this up. I'm like, what in the world is happening here? I, I, I open the Old Testament. I can't follow the story. I'm going to tell you most of the story of the Old Testament today in 20 minutes or less. So here we go. Um, so like, because to understand the phrase throne of his father, David, you have to understand like, the entire context of what that phrase means because when you get it, it's so powerful. So throne of his father David and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And man, that is fulfilling a lot. So here's, our story begins. I mean, we, we could start with Abraham. We could start with, with Adam and Eve. But I'm gonna start it at about 1440 BC with a guy named Moses, okay? So in 1440 BC or thereabouts, um, there were, God raises up this guy who's a, who's a prophet. His name was Moses. Then there were these group called the Israelites, uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, same group, the Hebrews, and they were in slavery in Egypt. And God says, all right, I'm gonna use this people to be a light into the world. He delivers them from slavery in, in Egypt. They had no power. God does all these plagues. It's epic and awesome. You, you ever see like the movie, The Prince of Egypt? You're like, there can be miracles. You know, like that song, remember that song? No, okay, so um, I can't sing. So, um, all right, and so the, he delivers them from Egypt. They go out into the wilderness and there God makes a covenant with this nation, this group of people called Israel. And he tells them something specific that we often miss the point of. Sometimes we read about like the Israelites in the Old Testament and we think, okay, the 
the, like, like, like the function of them is to just be a people, but we don't understand why they're a people. To say it like this, um, we place confidence purely in their lineage, but if you do just that, God disciplining them doesn't make sense. No, God makes them a people and he makes them a nation for a very specific reason. And you have Moses in, in, in one of his farewell addresses in the book of Deuteronomy tell them, hey, this is what God is gonna do through you. And this comes in Deuteronomy 4, verses five through eight. Moses says to them, see, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering, which would be the, the nation of Israel, to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. So God gives them all these rules and here's the why, okay? For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? And right there, Moses gives the, here's the why behind all the law, behind all the Israel stuff. They are to be a light to the rest of the world. In other words, like their lives, the way that they relate to God and even who their God is, what they function to do is to like be so different. And as they're different, as, as they follow God, God will bless them. And so what will happen is it's not for just them. Other nations will look at them and go, okay, I need to get with whatever God they're following. Because my gosh, if that's what happens when I follow that God, I want to be a part of it. Now, that's the idea. Okay, like, listen, as they follow the laws of God, like they'll be perceived as wise, like good things will work out in their favor because they will be a light to the rest of the world. And Israel goes, awesome, we're in. And about 10 minutes later, they screw it up royally. <laughs> and it begins this back and forth where you have, where, like Israel, like they'll follow God for a little bit. And then they'll decide, well, maybe these other gods would be nice too because the other gods don't have demands for me. They just let me do whatever I want. And so like God gives them over. Goes, well, if that's what you're gonna do, I'm gonna let your enemies ransack you and dag on it if they don't. And so they realize, oh man, I shouldn't have done this. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in life where like your, your decisions catch up with you and, you and you offer that prayer to God, like God, would you help me out? I'm sorry, you know? And God, but here's the thing, I'm not judging you because what we find in God's track record is he goes, I was waiting for you to say that, come to me, all right? And so over and over again, God raised up these people called the judges. And what they are is they're, they're, they're justice bringers and they deliver the people. And so finally, you go forward to the book of 1 Samuel and the Israelites, they're looking not to be a light, but they wanna be like the other nations around them. And they go, hey, you know what? The other nations don't have a king. We'd like a king. And the prophet Samuel, he goes, well, listen, God's our king. We don't need to be like that. And God goes, you know what? No, give it to him. Because I'm gonna teach him something through it enter the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, who's an absolute train wreck. Saul comes and, 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 and okay, again, this nation is designed to be a light to the world to show, hey, this is what happens when you follow God, the true God. And Saul, if he's gonna be the king of the people, he's gonna be God's chief representative among the people. This is big, okay? Like, like when we talk about uh, the, the king in, in the Old Testament, the thing to understand about Old Testament kings is this, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The king was supposed to lead God's people in being a light to the world. This is really big, okay? It's not just that they're the king who happens to be a Hebrew. It's that as the head of God's nation, they should be leading them not just with justice, but also morality. 
Okay, if, like, if Israel is to be the light to the world, the king should lead them in being lights. And so what Saul does is he publicly disobeys God twice. All right, he knows all right, God says to do this to the people and Saul goes, not only am I not gonna do that, but I'm actually build a monument to myself. All right, and you can imagine that God has something to say about that. He's not fond of it. And this is also really big because sometimes like we misread the Old Testament and we read stories about God judging Saul and we go, oh, like, oh my gosh, if I screw up, is God gonna judge me? And I would tell you, that's a fundamental misreading of God's relationship with Saul and his relationship with you. Saul's relationship with God was to be a light. Yours is to be in fellowship with him. You are not the king of God's people. He's going to deal with you completely differently than how he dealt with Saul. And so, and so God says, all right, you're not gonna honor me before the people, I'm not gonna honor you because you're derailing all of them. And he rejects Saul as king. Enter a little shepherd boy named David who has no power. He's not attracting anybody. His own father overlooks him for any kind of potential. But God sees him. And he goes, this guy will be after me. He'll be a man after my own heart. I'm gonna raise him up as king. So David is anointed to be king and Saul does not take kindly to that. And so for a couple decades after Saul is pursuing David, trying to kill him, David is not trying to take the throne at all. So finally one day Saul in battle uh, loses his life and David is anointed king of Israel. And we go, wow, awesome. And almost immediately Israel is attacked again. And so David, one of the, things, the incredible things that he does is he, he, like, it starts with Saul, but David really achieves it. He unifies the different tribes of Israel, makes them into one nation, and then he sets up Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. And David, finally, he, he takes the throne after all this waiting, but David, he starts after God. And so he goes, listen, it's not right that I now have a palace. Like, okay, I have a place where I live. I have a home. And yet God, who we're supposed to be all about, his home is this tent that's temporary that we move around all the time. Like what I should do is I should build a house for the Lord. I should build a temple because listen, I, I shouldn't be honored if he's not honored. Now, look at that heart, right? And so David goes, I'm gonna build a house for the Lord. And God says to David, thanks, but no thanks. He goes, I love your heart, but you're a warrior. Your hands have shed blood. And so, you know, here's these people who, their entire purpose is to draw people towards God. But what David has been known for is killing his enemies. That's not gonna draw anybody there. But God says to David, he goes, but you know what, David? You wanted to build me a house? I'm gonna build your house instead. And so he says this to him in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11. He says, like this is the prophet Nathan declaring the words of the Lord to David. He says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And before you think he's talking about Jesus, look at the next line. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. In other words, okay, listen, you don't have to worry about me obliterating your house like I did Saul's. You're in with me forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established 
forever. And right there, God promises a very unique relationship with the Davidic kings, the, the kings who are born in David's family line. And he, pro- he promises them four things, and here's what they are. Um, he promises a father-son relationship with them. He promises discipline for their sin. He promises, but check this out, chesed, unfailing, unending love. And he promises that the line of David, someone from his, David's line will be on the throne forever. And this sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament because this is what you're gonna see happen. Okay, as you're going forward. So, so w- within these four promises, you've got David's son, Solomon. So David dies, his son, Solomon takes the throne, right? And Solomon decides to build a throne for God. We, we can clear that off, Terry, it's fine. All right, um, so like Solomon builds this temple for the Lord and for a while it goes great. And then Solomon starts to intermarry with the other nations around him, and he starts to worship the gods of his multiple wives, not being prescriptive, it's being descriptive, but yeah, Solomon had a lot of ladies, okay? So, um, and his heart starts to go away from the Lord, and God looks at Solomon, and he goes, you're supposed to be leading my people as a light. But because I love your dad so much, and it would break his heart to see what's going on with you, I'll take the kingdom from your son, not you. So Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. And Rehoboam is the equivalent of an Old Testament frat boy. I mean, he is. I mean, like, if he were alive, he'd be crushing beer cans on his head, all right? So Rehoboam gets out there, and, and the people come to Rehoboam, and they say, listen, okay, we, like, we're happy to serve you as king. We just ask that you work us less than your dad did. Your dad put us on this temple project for years and years and years. We're exhausted. Just please let us relax a little bit. And Rehoboam goes, oh, should I do that? So he goes to the older advisors, his dad's friends. He goes, like, you guys think that I should do that? And they're like, yeah, like just give them some rest and they'll serve you forever. He goes, all right. That doesn't sit with Rehoboam. He feels like he's, like he's got this chip on his shoulder. He's got something to prove. And so he goes to his other frat buddies. He goes, bro, what do you think we should do? And they're like, yo, dog. All right. <laughs> I assume. It's Hebrew equivalent. All right. They go, listen, don't listen to them. If you, li- like, if you show weakness, what they're gonna do is they're gonna rise up all the time. So what you should do is actually lay the burden on them harder to prove that you're a more strong king than your dad. And Bone goes, yeah, that's exactly what I should do. And so he goes to these people and he goes, I was, all right, not only like you think my dad worked you hard, I'm gonna show you like what a man is being about. I'm gonna work you twice as hard as my dad did. Oh, forget you guys. And they go, well, why are we following this guy? Like what share do we have with the house of David? And the kingdom splits. And so you've got the northern kingdom, Israel, and now the southern kingdom, Judah, where Rehoboam is. I mean, he just loses all these tribes in one moment. And the northern kingdom, it kind of starts having this back and forth where, where uh, you, you've got kings and sometimes they follow God, but it's rare and they start to go after other idols. And, and then like God goes, all right, you know what, forget that. I'm gonna let your enemies take you off into captivity. And the northern kingdom of Israel is just carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, never to be seen again. And you have the, the southern kingdom, Judah, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, the kings go, sometimes they follow God, sometimes they don't. Some, like, and, and, like, and you go, why? Like, what, why would they do that? Okay, because like, okay, they'll start to follow God and then they'll, they'll derail and God raises up a prophet and their enemies attack and it's just sort of back and forth. Like what, what God promised would happen to David. Okay, listen, when they sin, I'm going to discipline them with the hands of other nations. 
And you just see it play out through the book of 1st and 2nd Kings. You go into the prophets, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. I mean, you just see this happen again and again and again and again, okay? All right, you go, why in the world do they keep turning from God when they see it fall apart? And the answer is because they're not that different from us. See, as they follow God, there are rules. And they can't live life the way they want to live it. Okay? Like, contrary to God, idols don't care how you live. All they care about is that you give them some money. As long as you give them some money, you can do whatever you want. Now, imagine you have absolute power in a country. Imagine, like, you have wealth out the wazoo that you could not, I mean, whatever you want to do, you can do. And you're given the choice between, okay, honor the Lord above you, who's going to tell you no, or do it your way. Guess what they choose again and again and again? And can I just ask you this question? Wouldn't you? Right? Like, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were given this kind of green light, and so they're enticed into this idolatry again and again and again. And around 600 years before Jesus, God says, like, all right, the only way we're going to break this cycle is if I let the hammer fall on you from your enemies so hard that it breaks your hearts so that you'll return to me. And so he raises up a prophet, a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah tells him, listen, you need to know what's going to happen is the Babylonians are going to come. They're going to ransack. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to take you all into captivity. And it's going to be humiliating because the king of Babylon, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, is not a nice guy. Nebuchadnezzar was a guy, some people, you know, they have baseball card collections or they have Pokemon card collections or whatever, okay? Nebuchadnezzar collected kings. And he would keep these kings and he would, like, put chains around the next and he would bring them out, like, to humiliate them at dinner parties. He would, like, you know, like walk them in and put his feet up on them like footrests. I mean, he's a brutal guy, all right? And Isaiah says, God's about to give you guys over to them. And everybody's like, oh my gosh. But God can foresee even beyond that. And so he goes, listen, but before that happens, I want you to know something. Before your entire world falls apart, before you lose everything, before I love you enough to let your actions catch up with you, because that's love, right? All right? Before any of that happens, I want you to know there's gonna come a day where all of that war stops, where all the bloodshed ends. And so he says this in Isaiah 9, starting in verse five. He says, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, there's gonna come a day where this war that you know is obsolete. There's gonna come a time where, okay, like there's not even point for having boots for soldiers because there's such peace that enters the world. Okay, and what does that day look like? Well, he says in verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God? He's a kid, but he's also got, what? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And look at this next line. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, hey, this is the king who's gonna do what the other kings should have done and always failed. This is the king Okay, like every other king that we knew at some point, like when it looked like he was gonna be a good covenant partner with God, he was gonna honor God before his people, he always failed, but not this guy. There'll be no sin in him. And one of his names, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God. Well, how can this happen? Well, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will do this, meaning God himself will bring it to pass. And this is where we begin to get this idea of God raising up a king from the line of David who would be with the other kings weren't. And it's not just Isaiah. You've got Jeremiah prophesying in the time as, as captivity is beginning. Um, actually, let me, let me give you one other from Isaiah. I, I, I want to not forget this one, okay? Because I really want you to, like, this is a recurring motif in Isaiah. So for instance, you, you've got this in Isaiah 11, one through three. He says, a shoot will uh, come up from the stump of, Dre, or of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad, okay? So he, he uses this illustration, okay? Like, we think that everything's been obliterated. Like, you know, like you cut down a tree, you've got just the stump, Okay? Yes, but suddenly, like a, like a shoot, like, a, like a, a branch springs up with life where you thought the life was gone, okay? From uh, his roots, a branch will bear fruit, okay? What does that look like? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he'll be the king that we've always been waiting for. But not just Isaiah. So I said, like Jeremiah, like, like around, like a little bit after that time, but not that far after, says the same thing. He says in Jeremiah 23, he says, behold the days, it's Jeremiah 3, or 23, verses five and six. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. And I love this. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, I love that. Because think about when you go to the New Testament. What does Paul talk about over and over again? Like, think about Ephesians, think about Galatians. When he talks about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Remember he says, he says Christ is our righteousness. Remember that? Like, okay, like, then, this is the Christian belief. It's not that you like clean yourself up and then God accepts you. It's that you and I are a sinner all of us are. We have disqualified ourselves from God, but God loves you and me so much that he's taken away our shame in Jesus on the cross, that Jesus says, I'm not gonna lead you to your sin. I'll die in your place to make you right with God. This is why like, Jesus has already made you as right with God as any human being can possibly be because he's given you his standing with God. And that only comes through faith. You ask him to save you and he will. Simple as that. This idea of the Lord being our righteousness, it's right here in Jeremiah. Like it, it predates the cross. And he begins to clue them in that this guy, this guy who's from the line of David, who sits on the throne, he's gonna be more than just another guy. I mean, so he's gonna be called mighty God. He's, I mean, he's, he's our righteousness. I mean, like there's all this stuff about him that just doesn't seem like a, a regular human being. And then more time goes on. And the Israelites, sure enough, they're in captivity in Babylon. And you have a prophet named Daniel. And Daniel, his entire message to them is keep being a light. 
You got all this pressure that's coming on you to conform to everybody around you. Like, like don't you want to be successful? Don't you want people to like you? Don't you want to have an advancing career? Listen, do it our way. Imitate the rest of the world. And Daniel goes, no, no, we're called to be a light. We are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. You've heard this teaching before for us. While Daniel is prophesying in, in Babylon, God gives him a vision. And he shows him, listen, this isn't gonna be forever. And he begins to show him about the upcoming world governments. I mean, like before they happen, it's awesome. I mean, he predicts the Medes, he predicts the Greeks, he predicts the Persians, like it's awesome. And at the end of all that, he sees this other government that's just odd. I mean, it's, it's weird. And so he has this vision in Daniel 7, he said, starting in verse 13, he says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me, was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. I'm gonna pause on that for a second here, okay? Okay, one like a son of man. Now, if you read your gospels, you know this is Jesus' favorite term for himself, right? I'm the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. This is what he's referencing, okay? So like, whereas Daniel sees all these other figurative things, now he sees a guy who looks just like a regular human being. But the weird thing is he's doing God stuff. Because like, when you read the Psalms or you think about Job, the one who rides on the clouds of heaven is not a human being, it's God. That's, that's who rides in the clouds, but this guy's doing it. And on top of that, it says, listen, he approached the ancient of days, who's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. So in addition to doing God's stuff, he's receiving God honor. I mean, this is really odd. And look at this line. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He's got an everlasting dominion that will never be destroyed, that will last forever. Now, where have I heard that before? Oh, yeah. Luke. 133, it's what the angel said to Mary. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's what Gabriel's getting at here. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus entered into the world and he is the promised king. He's the one that all the other kings failed to be, including David. And this is good news. You know, we, there's something stamped on us as human beings. We're intrinsically, this story is just part of us, even when we don't want it to be. This idea of, hey, there's someone promised that I'm waiting for that will fix the ills. I mean, play it out. Even when, I mean, p- pick a movie. Even when it's not about Jesus. You had Harry Potter, the one who lived. We're waiting for this boy to vanquish evil. We could go to the Matrix and talk about Neo. We could talk about uh, Aragorn and, and the Lord of the Rings. Like, there's just something in us that we just go towards this narrative. C.S. Lewis made a point years ago. He said, listen, the reason that it's like that is because, listen, when the gospel is absent, it's so part of us that we create it in our absence, or its absence. Like, in other words, we can't help but throw the gospel out there. And I wanted to tell you this morning, like, look, it's easy to look at the Bible stories and see where you fall short. 
and you're meant to. Because the only one who hasn't fallen short is Jesus. That's why he's the king. And by the way, it's why you and I shouldn't be. Because there's always that twist of sin in us that leads us towards a destructive life government. But if you'll make him your king, you have the promise of right standing with God and that his reign will come into your life and begin to bring you back on track. And it's not an overnight thing, but it'll bring you back on track with God's reign. So this morning, if, you, if you're sitting here, and maybe, listen, maybe where you are is you've believed, like, hypothetically in Jesus for years. Like, maybe, like, you know, like, you were raised a Christian, and, hey, yeah, Jesus died, and he rose. Okay, great. Um, have you ever accepted his reign in your life? Have you ever said, all right, Lord Jesus, I'm going to make you the king of where I go from here? If not, maybe you've rejected his reign and you want to come back. His mercy is new for you this morning. I don't think it's an accident that you're here. So I want to invite you to receive him as the one true king, the king from all others get their name. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you because you are the good, true king of creation. It was promised for years and years and years before you arrived. You have rightfully taken the throne. You are the only one without sin. You are the only one who deserves to be king of it all. Because you're God. It's yours. It belongs to you. Lord, for those of us who have not yet thrown our lot in with you, for those of us who, who have not said, you are the king, and I bow to you. Number one, we repent. We repent of our treason. We repent of our rebellion. We repent of trying to be kings or queens of our own lives. We had no right to do it. And we're sorry. Secondly, Lord, we acknowledge the grace that you've given us. That you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You've taken away our shame. That you've died on the cross in our place, you've suffered the penalty for our treason. And you've risen from the dead to give us new life, to make us new people who are part of your kingdom, to make it so the old is gone and the new has come. Brother, sister, hear this this morning. If you are in Christ, you are a brand new person. You do not have to live in that shame anymore. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. He doesn't see it when he sees you. He sees a child that he wants to bring back into his family. So Lord, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.